At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, May 30th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The website 538 had an article on the most edited Wikipedia entries. What the author Mona Chalabi did was to strip out the articles that related to Wikipedia administration itself. And so she just found the articles about actual things or people. Number one topic that was the most revised, George W. Bush had 45,000 revisions. The list of WWE, those are the wrestlers, personnel, 38,000 revisions. Down the list of the most revised articles, the United States, Michael Jackson, Jesus, and then eight to Barack Obama with 23,000 edits, and then Adolf Hitler with 23, but Adolf Hitler has 15 fewer edits or revisions than Barack Obama. Now, I know that length and number of footnotes of a Wikipedia article does not really mean how important it is, but I just find this stuff fascinating. So... If we take out this app, which right now exists only in my head, and do the Wikipedia relative importance generator, Grand Theft Auto 5, that Wikipedia article, runs 6,300 words and has 172 footnotes. 6,300 and 172. The Second Congo War, death toll 2.7 to 5.4 million, runs 5,200 words with 38 footnotes, so a full 134 footnotes fewer than Grand Theft Auto 5. Let's run it again. Second Sudanese War, lower death toll than the Second Congo War, 1.2 million dead. That article runs 3,400 words with 25 footnotes. Grand Theft Auto 4, 7,400 words with 208 footnotes. So Grand Theft Auto 4 had a good, I don't know, 178 footnotes more than the Second Sudanese War. It's not all terrible. Hey, let's look at this one. Soviet famine of 1932 to 1933. I don't even know much about it. I guess because Wikipedia barely covers it. Six to eight million people died. That article runs 1,032 words. Charlie Bit My Finger runs 1,500 words, so 50% more than the Soviet famine of 1932, which killed six to eight million people. Look, People's interest in things have nothing to do with the importance of things. Still, I am going to make the Wikipedia relative importance generator. Today on the show, comedian Gary Gullman. If it's my chance to introduce him to you, then I'm excited. And now how to think about the gap between rich and poor, and if that's what's damaging the prospects of so many Americans. In Seattle, a mayor's commission on income inequality leads to a $15 minimum wage. The French writer Thomas Piketty's book on income and wealth inequality has topped the New York Times bestseller list for weeks. Income inequality is the ascendant idea to explain all about the economy, which makes me want to question what we mean when we talk about income inequality. So joining me now to talk about this is Adam Davidson. He's the founder of Planet Money, contributor to the New York Times Magazine, writes and thinks about economics. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. Hey. Here's my conundrum. 
I look at income inequality, I look at the issue, and it's, it's real, you can't deny the facts, but I kind of wonder what it means. Well, a lot of economists tell us all these things that it means, but I get the feeling that it's, it's being pointed to as this is what's wrong with the economy, this is why Americans are suffering or the poor aren't doing any better and so forth. And my problem with income inequality as the culprit in all this is that it's so inexact. It's not a statistic. It's not any agreed upon what we don't agree if it's the 1% or the 0.1% that we're looking at. It's the relationship of one set of semi-nebulous statistics to another set of semi-nebulous statistics. And therefore, I wonder, do you think it's as useful to talk about income inequality as the problem with what's going on societally as it is to talk about middle-class wage stagnation or the immiseration of the poor, for instance. So, Mike, I think you have nailed, in my mind, what is a crucial issue here, which is what are we talking about? When people use the word inequality, what exactly are they talking about? Because it's not a precise term. Are we talking about the ultra-rich versus the rest of us? Are we talking about college-educated versus not college-educated? Are we talking about Americans versus people in Africa? So I I think what is widely accepted among economists and just widely felt among average Americans is something isn't working the way we thought it was working, that we seem to have a lot more anxiety than we used to, some obvious paths to economic stability and even economic growth seem to be broken, that that sort of the American dream seems to be broken. It, It doesn't seem credible that... Lots and lots of Americans can really confidently feel like, hey, my life's going to get better and better. I'm going to retire way richer than I am now. I'm going to retire richer than my parents ever were. So a big, big question is, is inequality just a result of that? Did something change in the economy? And now there's a smaller number of winners and a bigger number of losers. And so inequality is the result. Or is inequality actually the cause? Right. Did the rich get rich by stealing the money effectively from the rest of us? And I think a lot of the people, like I read Paul Krugman a lot, or you want to talk about Elizabeth Warren, they seem to be saying that it is almost a theft that the rich are getting richer on the backs of the poor. Is Can we prove that? Is that a good point? So the facts that are largely undisputed are that from the late 1920s to the late 1970s, we have what economists call the Great Compression. We have the rich are getting richer, but the poor are getting richer at a faster rate than the rich are. So for that period of time, there's broad-based economic growth that's widely shared. Obviously, the Great Depression is an exception to that story. But broadly speaking, wages are narrowing. Growth in the economy overall is felt by lots and lots of people at every income level. And that sometime in the late 1970s, that stopped happening. And since the 1970s, growth is really experienced, you know, Paul Krugman coined this term fractal inequality, that the 0.001% gets the most growth and, you know, the 0.01% gets the next most growth. And and what's broadly shared is that lots and lots of Americans, they're seeing their wages shrinking or not growing. There's periods of booms and periods of busts in everybody's lives. So we know that. Yeah. Why is that? Two main arguments. So the one argument is sort of it just happened. It wasn't anyone's choice. And that argument points to technology and trade. So computers, the Internet. Right. Someone, you know, a, a, a married couple, They're one's a tech guy, one's a biologist. They have so much more propensity to earn than 
anyone else than, you know, uh, a strong-backed worker on a factory line, for instance. Yeah, or on that factory line, yeah. uh, there, maybe in the 50s, you needed 100 guys with big muscles and not particularly strong education willing to put in a hard day's work to bend metal and shape things and yeah. move things around. And now all that bending and shaping is done by computers, and you need far fewer people with a lot more education to make sure the computers are doing it right, check the computers work. Trade is the other one where you have, um, for, for lower-skilled people, you have we no longer have so few lower-skilled workers all over the world. So lower-skilled workers are competing with lower-skilled workers in China and other places who are willing to work for a lot less. But higher-skilled workers, you know, can their, their work can spread much more widely. So the basic point is technology and trade seem to really help some people with specific skills and really hurt people with more routine, repeatable skills. So that's all in the it just happened, there's not much you can do about it. I'd say that probably does explain 60, 70 percent of what has happened, that if Ronald Reagan was never president, if Milton Friedman was never born, we'd be dealing with this. Why do we know that? Because European, more socialist economies are dealing because with a lot of this Milton as well. Milton Friedman was never born in Germany and they're dealing and with Sweden it. Yes, and Sweden yes. and yeah. France and, and Spain and the other argument, though, is that this is Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman's fault, that there was a philosophical change or just straight out corruption where the government stopped looking at citizens as power centers, that there's labor unions versus CEOs and started looking at us as consumers and started thinking, well, what's good for Wall Street is good for everybody. What's good for investors is good for everybody. If we can lower prices on products, everybody will benefit. And we lowered taxes. We um, started deregulating. We weakened union protection. And that strengthened this. And yeah. the people who believe that's the case say, yes, there is an increase in inequality everywhere, but there's not that 0.1% thing going on everywhere, that that seems to really be a U.S.-U.K. Uh, thing. Here's an impossible question. What should be done about this? When you look at American history, we do seem to develop institutions that respond to problems rather rapidly. Uh, it might take a generation, which when you're looking back 100 years seems like not a lot of time at all, but when you're living through it, it seems like forever. So as we're shifting from an agrarian society to an industrial society, there's enormous anxiety about this shift and how it's destroying society. But every aspect of our society adapted to it. And we eventually, it took a while, developed new laws, developed um, unions, developed, uh, you know, religion changed, family structures changed, certainly government changed very radically in ways that were unimaginable. You know, the role of the government, the nature of just civic life in 1920 was completely unimaginable in 1870. It was, it was you know, just utterly different. So, Broadly speaking, I think this is our big challenge, dealing with stagnating wages, dealing with a failure of the American dream. I think that for lots of Americans, there probably will be institutional responses. We can't predict them. That being said, it does seem that there's some chunk of Americans, maybe 80 million, 90 million, 100 million people with only a high school degree or less than a high school degree, people who are going to be left behind. And it's very hard to tell a story for them. So that the typical, I don't know, slate reader, the typical college-educated, curious, engaged person, it, it's fairly easy to imagine adaptations that mean they have a decent life. But I think we do now uniquely and 
it seems permanently have a group of Americans who are just going to be left out. And I don't know that there are policy solutions I've ever heard of that anyone's ever heard of that really how we deal with that. I think that's that's going to take the kind of creative energy of our of this generation. Yeah, and I know at this point we're supposed to say, well, that's not optimistic or force some optimism in, but you laid some you laid some truth on us. So that's fine. I'm fine with that. All right, good. Thanks a lot. Adam Davidson, who's the founder of Planet Money. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. A lot of comedians use words. In fact, all of them do, except the mimes. But their words are often about words. Like, think about the linguistic-based humor of George Carlin. Then there's Gary Gullman. Gullman is, I think, the preeminent comic working today who doesn't just talk about words and language. He talks about parts of words. He could break down a punctuation mark like John Madden used to be able to diagram the Bears' defense. Gullman gets into the quirks of abbreviation. Yes, he's the classic abbreviation comic. And in this clip, we'll hear him talk about one poor choice of words that a friend used. My friend Suzanne, she saw this, this documentary about Hitler. Adolf. probably one of those surnames you don't have to you don't have to qualify it was about hitler's atrocities but uh she couldn't think of the word atrocities so she substituted a, a synonym she said gary i saw this very interesting documentary about hitler's shenanigans <laughs> shenanigans uh close Hey, Gary Goldman, thank you for coming in. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so thrilled to, to be here that you even know who I am. It makes me, makes me very happy. So as I hear, absolutely. I mean, and the reason you're in is I saw you live, happen to see you live. And it's the I like language is what I do for a living. And it just struck me that you were very different. So I wanted to get into some of, you know, your techniques and jokes. You say in the setup there, a friend of mine said that. Did that actually, not yes. that it matters. It really. Yes, it really did happen. She did. She did. I mean, there was a setup in that she said, Hitler's, uh, uh, you know, there was that. And I used to make fun of the, the fact that we, and in a longer version of that set, I would make fun of the fact that we, we try to think of a better word while we're stalling for time with ah, uh, ah. and it sounds so dumb. Yeah. So I always say you should, you should try what the Israelis do, which, which is my favorite Israeli Hebrew word is, uh, <laughs> the, the Henry Kissinger really is. It's, That's right, the you Kissinger. You sound much smarter, and they always come out with a much better word the uh, ratification the uh, well but then there's the then there well there then there was the ed Koch human dial tone technique it is uh, how do you say <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he did that and then there's the and then there's the very nice french how do you say how ah. do you say is a good one. Oh, how do you say is a great one yeah but you can't get away with it if you don't have an accent so right and if you don't stick the landing it's like yeah. it is how do you say shenanigans and you're like, <laughs> no that's not how you say <laughs> right if you don't stick the landing yeah, yeah so she said Hitler's, uh, you know, shenanigans, and and I just, and I remember going on stage with that. That 
that night. I didn't have anything to say and just that setup, which I, I'm always reluctant to use a joke that's funnier just in the actual truth because it's like, well, what did I add to it? I'm just telling a story. That person actually wrote the joke mistakenly. So when I finally was able to come up with some some alternatives to what she could have said, that then then yeah, then then it became a joke that I could get behind. Do you do you build the joke on stage or do you go off stage and think about Let's synonyms for shenanigans and juxtaposing them with genocide. Oh, yeah. yeah, some yeah, some words are funnier than others. Like that, like my my favorite new quote is uh, the difference between a good word and the right word is like the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Yeah, I don't know who said that. Maybe I think it was Hitler. Twain. Or- yeah, Hitler. <laughs> it was Goebbels. But right. he wrote he was, it for Hitler. He was the language guy. Yeah, yeah it came on in Hitler's <laughs> speech. So yeah, so I'm always looking for the right word, and, and that's actually the most fun of of writing for me is is uh, saying it it better, cleaner, and not necessarily you know they that, what is it the, bre- the brevity is the soul of wit. Right. Well, that, that's sort of the, the opposite of what I what I do. I'm I'm a maximalist, and but I understand where that comes from. I I, I guess. Within the maximalist, there's there's brevity and, and economy of words. So, yeah. when you have to take that routine on Seth Meyers, some of it gets pared down. Does it kill you to lose some of the? There are other examples that we didn't hear in that clip that you do on stage, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it do, it doesn't it doesn't kill me. Yeah. Um, because it's it's really nice to get on television. It's really fun. Everybody <laughs> calls you and, and compliments you, and and so. To, for time and everything and a lot of times it's just yes this would be great for an audience that knows who I am and is there to see me but for a television audience or a studio audience it's like they don't really want to hear the deep cuts let's just get to the to the main the main meat it's also interesting I don't know maybe there was a time when people would think about the sensitivities you're not joking obviously you're not joking about Hitler or anything but there's this juxtaposition of Hitler and genocide and the Holocaust to yes. wacky words yes but now I mean the audience is right there with you no one seemed to have a problem yeah, yeah. I just I, I I tend not to do it in front of uh, crowds with older Jews because they're either the, the uh, Temple son, Beth son or, Israel yeah, welcomes Gary Goldman, son or yeah. daughter of a survivor, a grand grandson of a survivor, and it's just like it's it's sensitive. But yeah, I'm not actually making light of I'm I'm making light of people using the wrong word, right? Um, and as you said, when you mentioned Goebbels, I just had this thought, like. Even Goebbels had to have done the cliche writer's room thing where he takes like the young writer and says, now, the thing you have to understand about Hitler is you're writing in his voice. <laughs> right? You had to have done all the stuff. Oh, my God. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it was a huge marketing campaign and they were really selling yeah. this guy. It was, See, yeah, that, it was amazing. I mean, it's a great listen. Heinz, it's a great line. It's just not a great line Hitler would say. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't say this. This is, this is not me. I, I'm, I'm, this is... Uh, uh, kill him. <laughs> right. That's the thing. Yeah. Oh, God. So was comedy your only job? No. Yeah. No, I, I've... My first job out of college was accountant. I worked for what is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. And then I quit that two and a half years in. And started a succession of odd jobs, including Starbucks barista, doorman, waiter, um, substitute teacher at my old high school. Oh, yeah? How was that? Yeah, that, that was awesome. Yeah? That was How really old good. were you when you did that? 28. Uh-huh. And <laughs> did you feel more... I think 26 to 28. Yeah. Were, were the did you feel more of a kinship with the students or the teachers? Uh, both, because a lot of the teachers I had had, uh-huh. and now I got to sit with them in the in the lounge, in the teachers' lounge, and that was it. They smoked; you could still smoke, and they were, you know, a lot of them were clearly clearly burnt out. And the, 
I do not know how I was able to pull this off, but from 26 to 28, I was not embarrassed by the fact that I was making $40 a day and working at the same place I tried to get out of years ago. And I, I was a good student. I was promising I had a football scholarship, and, and now I hear him back there. But I really believed in myself. And, and there was no evidence that I would ever make a living <laughs> at anything but substitute teaching or, or accounting. So I, I really got to hand it to myself for being uh, deluded. And, and believing in myself despite all the evidence that, that I did not have any talent. Did you come from a really supportive family? No. Oh, no. No. My brother said, uh, it's great. You love this. Too bad you can't make a living at it. <laughs> and then my mother said, you never make us laugh, <laughs> which wasn't even true. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was the funniest person in the, in the family. You killed in that room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think my mother just wanted to keep me in, in the accounting profession. So another one, uh, last week... I opened the show by talking about um, Michael Bloomberg. He got a million dollars. He went to Israel. They gave him a million dollars and he gave it back. And they endowed 10 other scholarships or whatever. And this reminded me of your routine about Bill Gates and how just unbelievably rich he is. Yeah. Because he's worth how much? 60, well, the last when I did that joke, I think he was worth $60 billion And I think he's worth now, despite worth more now, despite the fact that he's giving it away at at a, a fast pace. Yeah, and that's exactly what I'm getting at. I could play a clip. Here, why don't we play this clip and hear you talk about Bill Gates being worth $59 billion. Bill Gates is the richest man in America, and it's a blowout. He, he is worth $59 billion. $59 billion. He makes everybody in here look destitute. And I know, even if you're like, no, I'm, it's okay, I'm a billionaire. No, fuck you, you are broke compared to Bill Gates. He, we have nothing in common with him. He has nothing in common with your, your run-of-the-mill garden variety, single-digit billionaires. <laughs> like, most of your billionaires, let's be honest, are, have one billion dollars. <laughs> They're what I like to call barely billionaires. <laughs> Whenever I'm introduced to a billionaire as a billionaire, and it turns out they've only got one billion dollars, I always say under my breath, barely. <laughs> Okay, I just looked it up. He's, he's worth $74 billion now since oh the joke. Oh, and here's the, wow. And the here's joke the, isn't that old. <laughs> no, here's the crazy thing. So, you know, it's gone up. It's gone up $15 billion. <laughs> like, that's a it's lot 25%. of money. It doesn't change the joke. How no. could someone get $15 billion richer and it doesn't even change the joke? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's remarkable. It's, it's scary. And they always, they always say... Uh, you know, if you tax these people too high, they're going to lose their incentive to work. <laughs> they're not working now. It's all passive income from investments and, and everything. And, and the incentive to work is their, is their megalomania. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a contemplator or a blurter? Like you hear something funny, do you, do you stew on it and kind of... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a, yeah. a ruminator. You are a ruminator. Yeah. 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 A I'm, contemplating ruminator. As yeah. soon as you get the funny thought, do you try to... Not on stage, I mean, you know, in conversation, you're trying to get it out. Like, do you engage? A lot of comedians try to do the one upsmanship thing. Uh, no, I mean there, there's there's time for that, but I always feel guilty about working out stuff in, in front of my friends because most of my friends are, are comedians anyhow, and it's like they can smell it from a mile away. But I will say, you know, recently I had this idea about the the, the different the, the fact that the greatest generation went through World War II and everything, and and the phone didn't change at all for for a hundred years right they, they didn't care that it that it couldn't take pictures of their penises and and that they couldn't watch movies on it and they they survived fine with the with the phone a hundred years all it did was you could leave the kitchen with it after a hundred years and then 
I th- I thought they even lived with pulp in their in their orange juice. Yeah. And then and then so I started ruminating on, on the significance of pulp and that there are different levels of of pulp and that they could not be bothered with with they were just happy there was something in their soup. Yeah. Now you right you go yeah. and Tropicana has three levels. Three levels of pulp. There's no. There's lots, and then I can't even believe that this exists. It's some. There's some pulp. Some. That's not a. That's not a quantity of pulp. <laughs> We're so coddled. <laughs> I never mind. And and to a survivor of a concentration camp, lots of pulp must taste like a smoothie, like a, fr- a frappe. It's so thick. They would they would enjoy that. What, there are bits of orange in my orange juice. That was a complaint, and Tropicana abided. <laughs> just, just to beat out Minute Maid. That's the, that's the, the that's capitalism right there. Is the competition right? It's frightening. Pulp levels. That's what we're going to get. <laughs> Gary Goldman is some of the funniest comedian working today. <laughs> Thank you very much, Gary. Oh, Mike, this was awesome. Thank you. And now the spiel. As we speak, the New York City Department of Health is considering overturning a ban, a ban that's been on the books for 15 years, a ban on an entity that presumably must be banned, else they weasel their way into our homes, our schools, the shoulders of weird dudes in the park. I speak of ferrets. Now, ferrets are weasels, true. They're also known as Siberian polecats and have been known to pay as much as a nickel for a spool of thread. The New York ban was championed by then-Mayor Rudolph Giuliani as part of his broken weasels theory. Ferrets are legal in 48 other states and in the parts of New York never overseen by Mr. Giuliani. But the same is true of handguns. And you know what they say, once they criminalize ferrets, only criminals will get the tips of their noses bitten off when they sleep. I kid, I kid. Ferrets are loving, kind, generous, delicious animals. Actually, none of that is true. But they seem pretty much tame as cats, as anodyne, as unvenomous snakes, and as furry as a heavily pilled sweater vest. But the thing about ferrets is that they drove Rudy Giuliani up a wall. Let's listen to this call. It's from 1999. In fact, we're coming up on the 15th anniversary of this call. Giuliani was hosting a radio show, and a ferret activist called in. Hello, Mr. Giuliani. We uh, speak again. Hi, David. Uh, let me introduce myself again. David Goodhart, executive president of New York Ferrets Rights Advocacy. Uh, last week when we spoke, oh, uh, no. you said a very disparaging remark to me that I should get a life. That was very unprofessional of you. Here we're trying to get something I, seriously I, done without you talking over me. We're trying to get something very seriously done. David, talked. you're on my show. I have the right to talk over you. But here's the thing. You and talked the fact over me is, the last time, and, and the fact, we are and trying the fact, to get an David. important issue taken care of where the city is violating state law. David, David! Keep listening. It gets even more unhinged. There is something really, really very sad about you. You need help. You need somebody to help you. This excessive concern with little weasels is a sickness. Though not in any textbook that I've consulted, an obsession with weasels would be classified as Mustella mania. Ex-mayor, advise thyself. According to German lore, an amulet made of ferrets or weasels was said to contain very strong magic indeed. But in New York City, to our former mayor, ferrets were like the ring, the one true ring of Tolkien lore. Those who contemplated ferrets for too long wound up gnarled and hideous, 
like Captain Queeg's strawberries or Norman Desmond's close-up from Mr. DeVille. Ferrets showed Giuliani's true nature. But now, ferrets may be welcome back to polite New York society. Welcome back more readily than Rudy Giuliani. The Giuliani brand has receded, and at the same time, pop goes the weasel. And that is it for the show and this week of shows. Andrea Salenzi produces, but alas, suffers from phanaromania, which is biting one's nails. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He is sadly afflicted with doromania, an obsession with giving gifts. You can subscribe on iTunes and review us. You can listen on SoundCloud. Email us at thegist at slate.com or we'll email you. Please sign up for that daily email at slate.com slash gist email. If I may suggest one mania to suffer from, how about habromania, a state of insanity characterized by delusions of a pleasing nature, sort of like constantly hearing a Joanna Newsom song. And thanks for listening.